Now, today we're starting a brand new series. Uh, this series is called The New You. Was anybody besides me a fan of Transformers as a kid? With the hands nice and high. Okay, yeah. All right, there were some of us, a few of us. Okay. Uh, who doesn't love Transformers, right? I mean, they, the theme song is awesome. Transformers, more than meets the eye. Transformers, robots in disguise. That's just an incredible premise. And uh, Optimus Prime and Megatron, they are from uh, the planet of Cybertron. That's right. I learned this year, uh, they're still making Transformer movies, by the way. Uh, and uh, it's amazing because the guy that does the voice of Optimus Prime has been the voice of Optimus Prime since its inception. So for the last almost 50 years, it's been this one Canadian voice actor who does the voice of Optimus Prime. No, it is not Liam Neeson. I know that's what everyone thinks, but uh, it's, a, it's a guy from Canada that does his voice. It's amazing. Uh, what are some other transformations? I'm going to name a few, see if you can uh, arrive at these, just shout them out. There's a transformation that takes place when a guy named uh, Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man. That's right. A guy named Clark Kent becomes Dr. Bruce Banner becomes the Incredible Hulk. Uh, Bruce Wayne becomes, and digging into the archives here now, all right, Steve Austin becomes the $6 million man. That's right. This is an old one. We're going to go really old on this. Jamie Summers becomes, anybody know this one? The Bionic Woman. The bionic woman, this is so old school. Now, there is something built into all of us that just digs the concept of transformation. We love transformation stories, right? Uh, that's why as kids, uh, we used to like, maybe this is TMI, but just uh, we would put on our underoos over the top of our sweatpants so we could run around like superheroes, right? Because it made you feel like Superman. I don't know why he wears his briefs outside of his tights, but that's just what he does. Uh, I can remember as a kid using the garbage can lid as a shield, pretending I was Captain America. Uh, I, uh, who among us hasn't like tied a blanket around their uh, neck and used it as a cape to pretend that they were some type of superhero, right? We are drawn to stories of transformation. And I don't think that desire for transformation ever goes away. We, even though we know we aren't going to become Superman or possess some kind of superpower, we do want to transform into different people. We want to continually become uh, a better version of ourselves. There is something in us that is drawn to that. We look at the various areas of our lives and we realize how we could change in those areas. Now, I want to be an incredible dad who always has uh, time and energy and, and be mentally present for my kids. I want to be the dad that always has time to throw the football and jump on the trampoline and build the fort and, you know, have deep conversations with my kids. And yet I recognize oftentimes there's a gap between who I am and who I want to be. That uh, sometimes I'm not, I'm physically present and mentally absent. Uh, sometimes I'm more tired. Sometimes I'm just not available. Uh, I want to be the kind of person who prays a lot and, and loves to study the Bible all the time. But guess what? I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I get bored reading the Bible. Just me. Okay. Uh, I find it difficult to pray for long periods of time. Again, maybe this is just me, but I go three minutes and I'm like, oh God, I just want to, oh, Twitter, what's on there? And it's just like, I get distracted very easily. I want to be the kind of person who forgives others. And yet I recognize sometimes I hold a grudge longer than I should. And the good news for those of us who are followers of Jesus is this one truth that I really want us to embrace during this series. God is transforming us. He is shaping us, if we'll allow him. He is constantly working on our hearts to chip away at our hearts, to help our lives reflect the love and the goodness of Jesus. 
And throughout the next several weeks, we're going to learn about this transformation that takes place in our lives, how God is making the new you. And, and the new you and the new me are collectively becoming a new community. And we're building a new society that's built around God's way of living and God's way of loving. And we learn about this by reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so we're going to walk through this document over the next several weeks. And I want to encourage you, uh, we, we often give you outlines, handout outlines. Uh, our, our, all of our notes are in the Church Center app. Uh, we put it up on the screen. But I want to encourage you, sometimes it's good to read through and have a Bible in your hands. And here's why. We get this brought to us in hindsight. So we look back at this document that was written a couple of thousand years ago, and it's got chapter and verse, and that's just for reference so that we can look up certain things. But the truth is, when the Apostle Paul wrote this to a group of people living in a city called Ephesus in the first century, he didn't write it with chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 2. He just wrote a letter. And sometimes what happens is we can miss the bigger picture when we, caught up, when we just get caught reading one chapter or one verse. And so this is really a document that would have been read all together. And so we're going to go through it. We don't have the time to go through the entire document, uh, but we're going to go through the entire document week by week over the next several weeks so that we can get a good understanding of this. But I, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, consider bringing it with you on a Sunday. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, consider grabbing one from our Next Steps area for free. That's our gift to you. If you don't have one, we want to make sure that you have one and maybe even consider reading Ephesians straight through this week on your own to give you a good picture of uh, this letter that the Apostle Paul writes. And so he begins and he says this as he's writing to people in uh, ancient Ephesus. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So who is Paul writing to? Who are these Ephesians? Uh, they are called, the, the reason this letter, uh, and oftentimes we have these books of the Bible and, you know, we read them, we're like, oh, you just get used to it. It's kind of like white noise. You've got Corinthians and Philippians and Thessalonians and uh, Ephesians. Like, what, what does all this mean? These are just groups of people. So in the same way, if the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to us today in Minnesota, it would say, that, like, the book of Minnesotans. That's what it would read. Because we're Minnesotans. And so uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to, when he writes to people in Corinth, it's just Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Or when he's writing to people in, you know, Thessalonica, uh, an ancient Greek city, he's writing to people who are called the Thessalonians. And in this way, he's writing to a group of people in Ephesus. And so it's Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Ephesians is a huge city by ancient standards, the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It would have, uh, when we think about towns or cities in, in ancient times, we tend to think small. We tend to think, you know, more like villages that might have a few hundred people. And that's true in large part for a lot of the stories of Jesus and the towns that he traveled to. But when you think about Ephesus, Ephesus was a city of between 300,000 and 500,000 people. It's located on uh, what is now modern-day Turkey, the western side of that, but it's on the Mediterranean Sea, so it's a port city. Uh, it is all kinds of commerce, massive amounts of people, not only 300 to 500,000 people that live in the city, but massive amounts of people that pass through the region because of uh, its location on the Mediterranean Sea and the number of people that travel there because of commerce. The Apostle Paul traveled all over the ancient world telling people the good news of Jesus. And here's the good news. Paul would just go to one area and say, here's the good news. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one that has come from God. The good news is not about what you have to do in order to get to God. 
The good news is the story of all that God has done to get to you. And he would travel all over the ancient world and he'd start a church and then he'd raise up a leader and hand it off and he'd move to the next area and start a church and pass it off. And so when he gets to Ephesians, when he gets to the, the, the city of Ephesus, rather, and, and he meets the Ephesians, uh, we can read about this in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. In these sort of this documents, this narrative documents the, the time that the Apostle Paul first went to Ephesus and then the time that he returned. And when he returned the second time, he actually ended up staying there for about two and a half years, teaching on a regular basis. And the main source of worship and commerce was the goddess Artemis. She's the goddess of fertility. And Paul's message of the good news of Jesus caused such a stir in the city of Ephesus that the silversmiths who made idols of Artemis out of silver were losing business. People were starting to worship Jesus. And one of their main uh, sources of, uh, you know, economic stimulus was they would build these idols out of silver. And people were less and less interested in the silver idols because so many people were following the way of Jesus. And so you read about the Apostle Paul arriving in Ephesus, teaching for two and a half years, and then later on in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul has left. He's, he's left it in the hands of Timothy. And Timothy becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus, a young, a young man who becomes the leader there. And Paul at one point is traveling back to Jerusalem and he stops to see his friends in Ephesus. And you can read about this. It's a, kind of an emotional uh, narrative in Acts chapter 20 where Paul says goodbye to his friends in Ephesus, recognizing he will probably never see them again in this life. And he travels on to Jerusalem. He does get arrested. Then he's in prison. And while he's in prison, he writes this letter back to his friends in Ephesus. And this is where we get this, what we kind of know as the book of Ephesians or Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it's an incredible document. And here's why. The first half, this, this can really, there's six chapters as we have it today. And it can be broken into chapters one through three and four through six. The first half of this letter describes and outlines all that God has done for us. It's, it's very, very vertical. It's, it's very much, here's what God has done for you and me. And uh, it's such a stark contrast to the gods that the people in Ephesus worshipped. And so uh, those gods demand sacrifices from you. And Paul would come along and say, no, this God actually offers himself as a sacrifice for you. Very, very different. Those gods keep you in captivity by making sure that you offer sacrifices again and again and again. This God offers his son as a sacrifice once and for all time. So you never have to wonder where you stand with God. You can know you're in right standing with God. God has done something on our behalf that no other God has done. And as a result, he's building a new community. Paul would say he's building a whole new society and it transcends nationality and it transcends any kind of political ideology or socioeconomic status. Imagine if this was all you'd ever known. Imagine if all you'd ever known was the goddess Artemis and little silver statues and you had to offer sacrifices again and again and again. And even then you never really knew where you stood with the gods. And imagine how freeing this would be. This is huge because Ephesus was a melting pot, different nationalities and different political ideals and different levels of socioeconomic status. And Paul would say that because of Jesus, God is building one new community, one new society, and you can be a part of it. And it's very vertical. This is what God has done for you and me. And then you get to the second half. And it starts with the word, therefore. And any time that you see, any time you're reading the scriptures and you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. Because it means, in light of everything that I've said up to this point, here's, here's what I say now. Everything that I'm about to say hinges on everything that I've just said. That's what a therefore is there for. 
And so uh, the Apostle Paul starts this second half, and he says, therefore, in light of everything that God has done for you and me, therefore, and then he begins to describe how we should live, how we should treat each other. And it all becomes very horizontal from that point on. This is all very vertical. This is all very horizontal in light of what God has done for us. This then is how we should live. This then is how we should handle our anger. This is how we should handle our emotions. This is how we should serve each other. Husbands, this is how you should treat your wives. Wives, this is how you should treat your husbands. Parents, this is how you should treat your kids. Kids, this is how you should treat your parents. This is how you should treat employers. This is how you should treat employees. It goes on and on and on. The implication of because of this, this then is how we ought to live. And we, we do not do this to become part of God's family. The Apostle Paul would say we do this because we already are part of God's family. And so as we make our way through this letter uh, over the next several weeks, here's what I want us to remember. What you've done doesn't determine who you are. And this is the temptation for us. Well, if I've lied, then my identity is a liar. If I've stolen, my identity is a thief. If I've, if I've done anything, if I've sinned, my identity is as a sinner. Because surely whatever I've done in the past identifies who I am. And yet over and over and over again, what we're going to see is that what you've done doesn't determine who you are. And yet who you are should determine what you do. Your identity, once you discover who you are, once you know who you are, then you know how to live. But what you've done doesn't determine who you are. That's determined by God. And once you know who you are, then you know how to live. And when we get to the second half of the letter and Paul describes how we are to behave, it's only because he's taken the time to help us identify who we are in Jesus. Some of you grew up in an environment, in a church environment maybe, that only focused on behavior modification. So it was very much, here's what you should do. But never, never rooted that in identity in Jesus. And so what ended up happening is it became very much a, a, a setting of legalism where it was thou shalt and thou shalt not, and here's the ought to and the ought not to's. And this is how you're to live your life because then you and God are good. And that becomes very legalistic. And the problem with that is the minute that you feel that you've broken that, you, you feel shame and you feel remorse and you feel like you've got to step away from God's family because like, you can't live up to the expectations. The flip side of that, uh, often what we've experienced in, in other settings is, hey, God accepts you. God loves you as is. Just come as you are, which is a great message. But then you're never challenged to change your behavior. And it just becomes licensed to do whatever you want to do and indulge all of your desires. Hey, God, I appreciate the forgiveness. I got some sinning to do. I'll be back tomorrow to get some more forgiveness. And that is not healthy either. But once we understand what God has done for us, and the identity that he gives us and his family, what happens is we start to operate as members of his family. Our lives reflect who we are and whose we are. In other words, we start to transform. You begin to become the new you that God has created you to be in the first place. Well, if God's the one who created me, then why do I need to be made new to begin with? Well, here's why. Every single one of us are broken. Now, before you like gasp in offense, Okay, listen, let's be honest with ourselves for just a minute. In various areas of our lives, you've set standards for yourself that you haven't been able to keep for yourself, let alone God's standards. You've set your own standards. You've said, this is how I want to live, and you didn't measure up to it. This is the decision I want to make. These are the values I want to live by, and you've fallen short of your own standards, much less God's. In fact, all of us have certain situations where we've lied to ourselves about our own motives, where we're, we've actually behaved in a way that's more selfish than we wanted to. Uh, we've taken advantage of others in small ways when it served our own interest, haven't we? 
The truth is, maybe you've said little white lies in certain settings to make yourself appear smarter, to make yourself appear better to certain groups of people. Who among us hasn't hidden the last pudding in the back of the fridge so that no one else would get it and we could have it later? This is just human nature. And those are just the small ways that we deceive ourselves, let alone the things that we do that we know are wrong, but we do it anyway because it feels good in the moment. And so we fall short of our own standards, let alone God's standards. And you and I know that in small ways we've done that. But there is also a deep longing inside of us to live out our true identity, to live a life that is congruent with how God created us to be, that that isn't at odds, that, that the gap gets smaller. And so when we think about becoming the new you, it's not this thing where I just work really hard to reinvent myself. Rather, it is recognizing exactly who God created me to be and returning to that purpose for which you were created. And we live in a society now that gets identity all confused. We've never, ever used this language more than we are today. How do you identify? What's your identity? And I need to find my identity. I need to discover my identity. And yet what we're, what we're learning more and more and more and more is that identity is not something that I can just decide for myself. It can only be given by the one who created me. And so in the verses that we're going to look at today, we're going to see what God has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what he promises in the future. And when we realize all that God has done for us, we can't help but be changed by him to become the new you God created us to be. So first, let's look at what God has done in the past. And the Apostle Paul, in this first uh, section of this letter, walks through past what God's done in the past, what he's doing presently, and what he promises in the future. Here's what he uh, uh, says about the past. Election. We are chosen to belong to God. Now, Let me just uh, preface this by saying this is not election the way that we use the word election, okay? There's not going to be any, uh, like, donkeys or elephants represented here, okay? Election just means uh, uh, he has chosen us. God, from the beginning of the world, has chosen you and me. Paul reaches back to before creation to call attention to the idea that we are God's prized creation. This has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. This is what God has chosen to do. Paul writes to followers of Jesus in Ephesus, and he writes this as a, uh, not just to them, but as a general letter to be read amongst other churches, to spread it around so other churches can read this message, and that includes you and me. And so here's what the Apostle Paul writes in the first chapter. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Before God even made the world, he thought of you. He thought of me. We find this type of language even in the Psalms when King David writes in Psalm 139, God, before I took a breath, you knew me. My days were numbered before I even drew my first breath. You saw me. You loved me. When you know who you are, Then you know how to live. Your identity and my identity is described in this incredible statement from the Apostle Paul. Before he made the world, God loved you and chose you in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now, that doesn't mean that I am without fault because I've done things where I am at fault. It simply means that when God looks at me through the lens of Jesus, he sees me that way. What an incredible gift. This is so important. Don't miss this. Before you were ever born, God knew you. 
God loved you and God chose you. Before you were ever born, before you ever drew your first breath, before your dad ever winked at your mom, God knew you, God loved you, and he chose you. That was God's original design for us. And before you ever did anything nice for anybody, before you've ever prayed a prayer, before you ever bought a gift for someone, before you ever served another person, uh, before you made your most regretful mistake, uh, before you ever said something you wish you could take back, before you ever violated the values that you hold, God made you, God loved you, God chose you, he knew you. And so this anxiety that we sometimes carry with us about, God, where do I stand with you, based on my behavior, doesn't need to exist for us. Once you put your trust in Jesus, that is unnecessary. We don't have to wonder where we stand with God. God knew you. God loved you. God chose you. It reminds me of like first grade recess when we go play kickball and you'd have like two captains and they're like picking teams and I'd always be standing there going, oh man, don't, please don't pick me last. Please, 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 please pick me before her. Please. And there's like that anxiety of like, oh, I hope I get chosen. God picks you. He chooses you. He accepts you. Now, that doesn't mean God approves of everything you do. But he does accept you. And there's a huge difference between acceptance and approval. God accepts you. He loves you. He chooses you. And the reason I want you to hear that is because some of our deepest wounds as human beings come from rejection. And the temptation when we feel rejected is to try to heal our wounds by finding significance and meaning and identity through the acceptance of other people. And isn't it true for most of us, our biggest regrets in life came about as a result of searching for acceptance from someone other than our Heavenly Father? That we were looking for someone else to approve and so we make unwise decisions when in reality, if we just would remember, nope, God loves you. God chose you. He created you. Imagine the freedom that comes from recognizing you're already accepted. You don't need anybody else's approval. If you've been putting God off because you feel like he's angry or you feel like he doesn't accept you, let me be very, very, very clear. God accepts you. He loves you. And you can't make God stop loving you. God is never going to love you any more or any less than he does right now, no matter what you do, because God's love is not based on you. It's based on him and who he is. God is love. And it's not just an expression. It's not just an emotion that God expresses. It is who God is. The, even I, the concept of love only comes because God is love. It is core to who he is. And so Paul wants to make sure we never forget. God created you. God chose you. So he, he, he points to the past. He says, even before you were born, God chose you. And then... Paul then moves to the present, and he says, here's what God's doing in the present. In the present, the word we would use would be adoption. We are part of God's family, that God has actually adopted you into his family. Well, why would I need to be adopted into his family if he already chose me and created me? Well, because we were created to exist in a loving community with God and with each other, and yet what we discover in the creation narrative is that starting with the first man and woman, and if we're honest, moving on to every one of us, we've chosen to say, God, thanks, but no thanks. I think I'll live life my own way. And as a result, it causes brokenness between us and God and us and each other. And so God immediately put into place a plan to redeem his creation. That through Jesus, we can stand before God and he sees us because of Jesus, not because of us, but he sees us with, without fault, without blame, no matter how broken we've been in the past. 
This is why Paul says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing because what could possibly be better than to know that even though I've fallen short of my own standards and even though I'm broken, God has already chosen to view me not through the lens of my brokenness but through the lens of Jesus, that he's adopted me into his family. And so the Apostle Paul continues in this letter in the next verses and says this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. The apostle Paul would say, look, look at all that God has done for you. Look at all that God has done for me. Look at this. He created us. He chose us. Even before we were born, he chose us. And then even when we walked away, he said, nope, I'm just going to re-adopt you back in. Well, God, uh, thanks but no thanks. going to live life my own way. Okay, I'm going to adopt you back into my family. I have a friend who um, uh, about 17 years ago uh, decided, man, we, we, we would love to do foster care. They had two daughters and just said, you know, if we could do foster care and eventually adopt, we'd love to do that. And once they got cleared to be foster parents, literally within a couple of weeks, they got a call. And they said, uh, there's a baby boy that's been abandoned in the parking lot of the hospital, left in a duffel bag under a car. And would you guys take him in? And they said, yep, we'll take him in. Took him in. And uh, it was so fun to be able to, you know, we've been friends for a long time, to be able to see that process to see them take him in and then eventually they adopted him and he's been with them ever since and now he's 17 years old he's a senior in high school and to see that he actually received a brand new name the entire trajectory of his life changed because he was adopted this is what God does for us he gives us his name he gives us his inheritance he gives us all the rights that come in with being a son or a daughter of his this is language, not only that we understand, but in the ancient world, this language was understood. Uh, in the ancient world, childbirth was risky, potentially dangerous. Many people who were wealthy, who were members of the upper class, would actually adopt adult children, would adopt people into their family to carry on their legacy and carry on their estate. And in the Roman Empire, when you adopted someone, you were just not only giving them your name and giving them all of your rights and your status and making them an heir to your estate, they got an inheritance not only for when you passed on, but in, in their current life. Be, even before, the, even before the, uh, the person in the upper class would, would pass away, the person that was adopted got to experience all the rights and all the benefits of being a child of that person. They had full access to the estate. And Paul uses this term because it's a familiar term for his first century readers. And it makes sense to us. That when someone is adopted, they get a whole new name, they get a whole new life, it's a whole new trajectory, they're made a part of the family, they're loved as if they're uh, just uh, same as any biological child. And Paul is saying, this is what God has done for us. Though we might see ourselves as poor and undeserving, God has adopted us into his family. And though our sins have caused us to be broken, God is giving us the full rights that come with being a son or a daughter in his family. We belong to him, and it means we share in Christ's inheritance. And then he just reminds us, and this is a common theme in a lot of Paul's writings, our freedom, our freedom from sin and our right standing with God 
came at a price. Our freedom wasn't free. But that he took that price on himself. And that Jesus, we can experience freedom in our lives because Jesus was willing to forfeit his own. That's why we celebrate communion. When we celebrate communion, it reminds us that we belong to God and we've been adopted into God's family, but that adoption came at a price. The broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus through his death and resurrection purchased our freedom from sin. It finalized our adoption back into God's family. And so here's what Paul says. And it's such a great reminder for you and me. In the past, God chose us. But our sin caused brokenness to that relationship. And so then God entered into our presence. And he adopted us back in, putting back into place his original plan. And yet, we still live in a broken world, don't we? We still deal with sin and brokenness and suffering and hardship. That's why God also makes a promise for our future. And it's this. Restoration. That all things will be as they should be. All things will be as they should be. One day, God will finally and fully restore all things. This is the hope that followers of Jesus have. See, this is what allows us to endure suffering. This is what allows us to endure hardship. This is what allows us to endure difficulty, grief, pain, loss, sickness, troubles that come our way. One of the main things that separated followers of the way of Jesus in the first century Roman Empire was that they were absolutely unafraid of death because they worshiped and followed the one who had overcome it. They, they knew there's more to this life than this life. And I got to be honest with you, when I faced the most difficult seasons of my life, the most painful and difficult things that we've gone through in this life, I can't imagine getting through those things without the hope of eternity. I can't imagine facing all of the troubles that this life throws at us if I didn't have a hope for what was to come. It's the only thing that gets us through some of the most difficult things that this world throws at us. And so Paul gives us the movie trailer. He, he kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit and reveals what God is ultimately promising. Here's what he says. He says, now, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ. If you're ever wondering what God was up to, Paul says, here it is, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Now, that doesn't mean everything works out always the way I want it to in my life. It means ultimately, when God fully renews and restores all things, everything on heaven and on earth will come under the loving lordship of Jesus. One day, all things will be as they should be. If Jesus could overcome death, Here's what that means. The finite laws of nature bend to his will. That he is not subject to the laws of creation because he is the creator. And as much as creation rebels against God, he lovingly sets into motion a plan to renew and restore and redeem all things, beginning with you and me. And you and I are beginning to be renewed and restored, even though we still face challenges in this life and the consequences of our own decisions. So how do we know that God will keep his promise? This is how Paul kind of wraps up this section. He says this, God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth. That means God is bringing together everyone. It isn't just for one nation or one group of people, but God is building a whole new community and a whole new society and everyone's included. 
and the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. When you put your trust in Jesus, when you say, God, I want you to be the leader of my life. I I, I put my trust in you. Here's what happens. God's Spirit becomes a part of your life. And Paul says, it's like the down payment. It's like the down payment. It applies toward the final purchase. And it simply starts when you believe. When you say, I trust that Jesus rose from the dead. I trust that he will eventually restore all things beginning with me. So I'm going to surrender my life to the one who purchased my freedom with his blood, who overcame death for me. And so let's put it all together. Here's here's this whole section that Paul's writing and what it means for us for today. First, God's original plan was that you and I are chosen. He he, he wanted to create this uh, uh, community with us where we would have loving community with God and others. He chose to create human beings to make us the pinnacle of his creation. We are the only creatures in all of creation created in his image. So you have to remember, you were created by God and for God. And that is where you find your identity. And until you acknowledge that, life will never really make sense. Second, because we turned against God in his ways, our relationship with God was broken. But God stepped into our brokenness and adopted us back into his family again when you believe, when you put your trust in him. And we now have access to the full rights that come with being a child of God, regardless of what's in our past. But that adoption costs something. And Jesus allowed himself to be put to death to purchase freedom from sin and death. And then here's the third thing. Paul would say this. We live in this era in human history when we've already experienced forgiveness and grace, but we still deal with this temporary consequences of our sin and brokenness. So God's spirit is a down payment on God's ultimate promise that all of creation will one day be fully and finally free from sin and brokenness, and all things will be united under the loving lordship of Jesus. That's good news. And so it means what you've done never determines who you are. But once you recognize who you are, it ought to determine how you live. Once you know who you are, then you know how to live. This is why we use language like this at Westbridge Church. Hey, come as you are. That phrase is amazing. It means something. It means you don't have to change anything about yourself to walk into these doors. Come as you are but don't stay that way. Come as you are, and you don't have to change anything to come and meet Jesus. It's just that Jesus is so transformational that once you meet him, you'll probably change. Once you recognize who you are, you'll probably start to change how you live. This is what God has done for us. He accepts you and loves you as is, but he loves you too much to leave you as is. The first half... It's all vertical, second half, all horizontal. Here's what God's done for us. Here then is how we should live and treat one another. And this would be the point in the talk, typically where I'd go, all right, now let me give you the action steps. But today, all I want us to do is just sit in the recognition of all that God has done for us. We're going to get to the second half of this letter in the next few weeks. We're going to talk about the implications for us as followers of Jesus and how to live. But right now, I just want us to go home and maybe even just read Ephesians 1 through 6. It's six chapters this week. And just, and just rest in the acknowledgement all that God has done for us. In the past, he's chosen us. In the present, he's adopted us. And he promises in the future to fully restore all things.
And we get to be a son and a daughter of God. Not because of anything we've done, but because of all that he's done. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to invite you to do that. It isn't based on you. Your identity isn't based on what you've done in the past. It's based on who God says you are. And he looks at you through the lens of Jesus and he sees a son and he sees a daughter. And if you've never said yes to that, you can say yes by just agreeing with this prayer. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I have walked away from you. And I'm so grateful that you never walk away from me. And I pray yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Help me to find my identity in you and in nothing else. And then help me to just trust your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every one of us. Our temptation is to find our identity in ourselves, to find it in our behavior, to find it in our our wealth, our portfolio, uh, our charisma. There's all of these things that we tend to find identity in. And I pray that you would just remind us through this first section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you chose us, you've adopted us, And you promised to restore all things. And may we sit in that this week and may it change us from the inside out. May our identity be rooted in that. And God, may it cause us to look and love more and more like Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.